Hello, and welcome to the Long-Term Investing Podcast with Baskin Wealth Management. I'm Barry Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer. Baskin Wealth Management is an independently owned investment management firm with over $2 billion in assets under management, providing customized wealth management solutions and services to families and foundations. In this podcast, we ignore all the noise and have conversations that make sense about the things that matter in today's markets. It's what we talk about with each other here in the office, and we want to share those conversations with you. Please stay tuned for our legal disclaimer at the end of the episode. And we're back on the podcast. I'm joined again by Ernest. What's going on with you today? Apparently, there's going to. I just got an email from the the school board saying that they're going to shift the PA day because of a solar eclipse. Yeah, I saw that on the news. Explain what is, do they not want kids looking at the sun or the eclipse or something? But worried they're going to burn their eyes. No, I didn't. I thought it was just for because they wanted people to see it. But I don't know why. I, I don't know. We'll have to do some more investigation and get back to you on the next podcast as to why that's happening. Uh, my son is in uh, University of Montreal, and apparently the he, this they're on strike in Montreal. The uh, university uh, professors or the teaching assistants, so he's off school this week. So a lot of fun to be paying for school with PA days and strikes. But I guess that's the way it goes. No so, strikes for us, so, though. No, there is no. definitely the markets don't strike. Oh, so I thought before we get into our feature discussion, uh, people want to know what you do during earnings seasons. We're in the thick of it now. Earnings are coming in fast and furious. And I thought it'd be interesting for you to Ernest to talk a bit about what your day is like and what you try and focus on the key points when co- our companies report their earnings. So companies are are legally required to report their earnings on a quarterly basis. So this usually, for most companies, this usually covers uh, the, the three-month period beginning with like, from January to March, April yeah. to July, and so on. So companies are now reporting their fourth quarter earnings for the period ending December 31st, 2023, give or take. Yeah, you don't you don't have to follow that calendar, but most companies do just because it's easier. And it matches probably their corporate year end, right? Exactly. Most people who have companies, their corporate year end is December thirty first. Just makes things easier. So, mm-hmm. so most of the most of the things that are reported are are just noise. Like it's just what happened in the quarter. Um, maybe what's your outlook for the rest of the year? I think the fourth quarter results. Um, which are currently being reported, are a little bit more interesting because they typically, the companies are going to provide guidance for uh, the upcoming year. So they'll they'll talk a little bit about what they think is going on and how they see the year shaping up to be. And so when a company reports earnings, generally they'll prepare their statements for the quarter. Um, and as well, they'll have a conference call generally, right? So, what do you? Yes. What type of things are you um, looking for in those reports in those conference calls? So, in these calls, they are usually the people asking the questions are usually um, sell side analysts. So, these are people who work for banks or brokers who publish investment research as a living. That's right. So they're the ones who say, "I." give Apple a buy and my raise or lower my target price to X or whatever? A lot of the questions are are nitpicky. 
what we call modeling questions. So like, what do you think the tax rate is going to be for the rest of the year? And why are they asking those kind of nitpicky modeling questions? Because they're trying, because ultimately what a lot of these analysts are trying to do is they are trying to create a price target based on a financial model, which is something that everyone should do. But I would say sell-side analysts are probably more focused on creating a model than looking five or 10 years out. That's right. They're, they're trying to justify why the stock is trading where it's trading and come up with a valuation for an, a very short period of time. I think what I like to look for in these earnings calls is that this is typically the, the only communication that the management has with its shareholders. Like for, I'm, you, from time to time, you can, you can call the investor relations team and, and talk with them too. But for companies such as Google and Microsoft, this is the only time, apart from company events, where yeah. you will hear them talk about the business. You can call up, Ernest, a company that has a smaller market capitalization um, and, and really have a, maybe a meaningful conversation, even with the CFO there or the CEO. But you can't call up Google or Microsoft and speak to the top yes. people. They will not take your call. Exactly. You so a lot of what I like to do is I like to pay attention to what these people are saying, how, they, how they're thinking about the business going forward. Maybe if somebody asks a tough question about like a competitive threat to the business, how they answer it and how they think about things. Yeah. We don't necessarily care how many widgets they're going to sell in the next three months uh, as long-term investors. I mean, it's sure, it would be great to not have a company miss expectations in a short period of time or, you know, have a stock go down or be embarrassed. But if the thesis is unchanged, we're, we're just going to ignore the short-term noise, right? Exactly. And that's, that's usually what ends up happening is like the company will report earnings. The stock might go up or down a couple of percent. Uh, I'll review it. Not really any change to the long-term thesis. And then we move on. So many times you'll see a stock report earnings and beat the estimates that the analysts have modeled for. And sometimes the stock will go down. Yes. Sometimes it will report earnings that are terrible, way worse than expectations, and the stock could go up, right? So it's all about essentially what is priced into the stock and what the guidance or the outlook that may the company may give on the call. And I would say that the near-term financial things, um, the, the questions that the sell-side analysts typically like to ask about, those things are usually pretty well-priced into the, to the stock. So if the company in Q3, for example, they said, we think Q4 is going to be bad. And then Q4 was bad, but was not as bad as everyone hoping. And they, maybe the, C, the CFO said, Gave, had, had a tone that the, yeah. the, the economy was improving and that things were going to be better going forward. Sometimes the stock they'll might say, go up. yeah, sometimes they may say, well, you know, Q4 was bad, but in December, the last few weeks, things improved. And we're feeling better about the year upcoming, even though they have uh, maybe did a lousy, had a lousy report and everybody knew they had a lousy report, stock can rocket higher. And we've seen that yes. so many times. Exactly. And there's also what we call the sober second thought where possibly the company reports earnings um, and the market either loves it or hates it after hours. And then the next day, there's 
uh, different thought process and that turns around, right? We've seen those reversals too. So you can't learn a lot from stock price movements in the short term, especially after earnings reports. No, you really can't. And mm -hmm. it's one example is Google this week. Yeah. I think the stock was down 6% on earnings yeah. because the CFO said they thought that he didn't say it direct. She didn't say it directly, but she implied that the revenue growth rate was going to be a, a bit lower okay. in 2024, right? Uh -huh. I think I think investors can sometimes read a little bit too much into these things and kind of lose sight of the big picture. And what and and it possibly could be the truth. And then, of course, now that they've set the table that the revenue could be a little bit lower even if it comes in a little bit low, but not as bad as what people thought it could be, Google stock could then just shoot right back up or even dramatically higher because, oh, we feel so much better that it wasn't that bad. I would say in, in, my, in, our, in our experience, like there is a whole industry of people and data and companies that try to pinpoint exactly what earnings are going to be and how far off the consensus it's going to be and those kinds of things. Like you can, you can pay for services that track parking lots yep. of retailers, yep. right? And estimate whether traffic is going to be better or worse than what the management said. Uh, how, like, for example, you can see people subscribe to how much they think Amazon is going to report in retail sales. Where do they get this data? Is it all nonsense anyways? Yeah, I think it's it's yeah. mostly inferences around yeah. like like there's credit card data you can buy, yeah. like I th there's satellite imagery you can buy. There's no end to it, really. By the way, uh, clients, we're not spending your money on that kind of stuff. And, and the reason that we don't do those things is, I think it's it's mostly noise in the long term. You can, I think, it, it makes you lose sight of the the big picture, which is what the company is doing in. To, to gain market share and to grow over time. That's right. And Google also said that capital expenditures in 2024 are going to be higher than 2023, 20, possibly, and things could change. But that may actually be a good thing. Maybe they're strengthening the moat, yes. building out another competitive advantage. We don't know what they're working on. They're, and I think Google is famously for being famous for being pretty cagey on their conference yes. calls and not reveal. Same with Apple. They'll always say, yes, we're working on AI, but we're not going to say one word about it. So and uh, sometimes these calls are useful. Some companies that we own, like Constellation Software and Berkshire Hathaway, don't even have conference calls. They will tell you nothing. And you'll hear a lot of about Berkshire at the annual meeting, but it's really folksy advice of how to live, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Or so uh, I mean I I assume Warren Buffett has already said all he needs to say about how he's going to invest going forward and uh, so but getting back on point we're going to talk about uh, companies a few companies that have reported their earnings this quarter and uh, then we're going to have a feature discussion of a company that we have owned for a while but haven't talked about so speaking of Google Microsoft Ernest one I mean both companies. I, I hate using this, but both companies beat earnings expectations. Um, Microsoft gave a very strong outlook. Google, not as strong. Uh, both stocks went down the day after reporting earnings, but that had more to do with the Federal Reserve, yeah. possibly not raise it, uh, lowering interest rates faster than people expect, but that's neither here nor there. So uh, any, any points you want to talk about, uh, about Google and Microsoft? So I think it is really incredible 
how fast these companies can grow at the size that they are, right? I think a lot of investors typically, they look at something like Microsoft and say, well, it's the largest company in the world, right? How can it grow double digits forever? Yeah, right. Then Microsoft grew revenues by um, 20%. Yes. <laughs> in tw like, That's mind boggling. Yes. Yeah. And, and the reality is that like, these are just outstanding businesses that continue to do that. Um, Google has so, more revenue. Google has more revenue than Microsoft, I think. Yes, and grew revenues by thirteen percent. And I, I read that search uh, revenues accelerated. Like, haven't people already searched all they need to search? Yes. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting how these companies, as you said, growing at scale. And for Microsoft, I think the main focus on the earnings call was around what they're doing with AI, especially since uh, AI contributed. A large is an increasingly large contributor to their cloud business, but I think there there were a lot of other things that were pretty positive as well. Like Office, like just plain Microsoft Word and Excel, like that that continues to grow double digits. So what's happening there? Are people converting from, uh, you know, they used to pay uh, for the software once and use it for a few years, and now everybody pays on a monthly basis. Yes. Are they raising the fees? They're getting more subscribers? Yes. So yeah. it would be, there might have been a, like, take take Baskin, for example. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, everybody was using a licensed version of Microsoft Word and Excel and PowerPoint. Over time, all of these users are migrating to the, the cloud version, 365, because partly for security reasons, um, but also because they're adding a lot of new features into the new thing. Yeah. And 10 years ago, Baskin had 12 employees and now we have 26, 27. So there's 15 more employees that we have yes. to pay licenses for. And that I assume that price goes up every year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think more, more notably is that they talked a little bit about Copilot, which is their AI assistant that is being integrated into a lot of their products. So like, for example, uh, I think the most famous use case today is something called GitHub Copilot, which is a tool that um, if, you're a, if you're a programmer, you're writing code, GitHub Copilot will, will write code for you. So you don't have to, you can save a lot of time. I don't know how to write code, never will, but it sounds like an interesting product. Is there any Copilot uh, projects that will be applicable to the regular Microsoft Word, Outlook, user yes so yeah. they are also uh they've also launched uh 365 copilot which is implemented into powerpoint excel and word and can, teams so can it answer my emails for me yes it, it actually can and that's one of the use cases that they're seeing is that uh you can now use an ai assistant to write drafts of meetings that you've had uh summarize uh, your databases those kinds of mundane things that uh, previously would have taken you a long time to do. And we're just getting started with AI being an assistant to uh, helping with productivity, right? This is just the, just scratching the surface. And the reason that this stuff is, is, is important for Microsoft stock, uh, beyond being pretty cool, is that the more Microsoft and, and software in general can save you time, right? And that's pricing opportunity that they have because if you can save a developer like half their time, that's 
like that that's less developers that you need yeah. because every like you can write more code and that's going to be true for i think across their portfolio i think so and of course if you everybody's already integrated into microsoft products it runs our home life it runs our business life it runs the world and it's a name that you trust and and so i i think the sky's the limit really for microsoft and what they're trying to achieve and we didn't even talk about activision like, yeah i think microsoft is such a big company today that like, they can make a 60 billion dollar acquisition and and like, you don't hear anything nobody about cares it. about it the activision is going to add what seven or eight billion dollars of revenue yes yeah to a company that's going to do well over 200 billion dollars of revenue it's a rounding error yeah, so yeah. we'll we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> but doesn't hurt. Um, Google, the we talked about the stock dropped as a result of uh, less than exciting guidance. But anything uh, that caught your eye as a long term investor that uh, gets us excited? Yeah, I think there there was a quite a bit. Um, there were fears. Remember, in the beginning of twenty twenty three, yeah, um, there were fears that AI was going to disrupt Google. Totally. That everybody was going to do all their searches on ChatGPT. Or, or switch to Microsoft Bing. Yes. Which did not happen. So I think what ended up happening, and you can see this from the results, is that this just didn't happen. Um, like engagement is up across the board, for even for search. So people are, are searching more. Uh, their core businesses, like YouTube, uh, Maps, Google Assistant, and all these kinds of things are still growing very nicely. And they're adding new ad formats to take advantage of that. Amazing. Right? Um, I think that like, we talked a little bit about the, the, the tone of the week guidance for 2024. But I think at the end of the day, right, this is a fantastic business trading at 22 times earnings. Yeah. They're going to make a ton of cash flow and all of it's going into buybacks. So, yeah. like, I don't. And even, even if the organic growth slows down from 13% last quarter to 9 or 10 or 11%, still pretty good. And of course, you don't know what's going to happen in the prior year, in the future coming years, and the investments that they're making in AI, uh, how that will accelerate revenues, right? These are exactly. companies are driven to make more money, right? And good things happen when you have balance sheets like. Microsoft and Google have incredible. Yeah. Google has a hundred billion dollars net in cash. Yes, so that's insane. And then they're also looking at ways to using AI to to improve the cost structure of the business, right? So, I think Google seems attractively valued. All right, one quick one, uh, Ferrari. We did a podcast on that. We've talked about the name a lot. The stock is up an incredible twelve percent today, which is uh, shocking to me, but. Uh, the company, uh, I guess, once again, the guidance was better than feared. This was not a company that came out with saying that, you know, we're going to sell a double the amount of cars and everything is the, the best it's ever been. But I think there was some fear that the company would lower guidance or say, because they they kind of said that 2024 is not going to be as fabulous as it was the past few years, but clearly the the guidance was good enough. So basically, Ferrari said their order book is stretched out all the way past 2025 now yeah um like you can't buy a ferrari before that yeah well it, we're into 2020 yeah and so orders are now being taken for 2026 and nearly sold out i think one thing that is interesting about ferrari is that if you look at 2023 they only grew car units like the cars sold by about three percent but 
revenues were up much more than that. Yeah. Well, there's just not they're not making more cars, right? Their their goal isn't to double car production every few years. It's to incrementally add new cars and new lines and at higher price points and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they've raised prices substantially, partly because of 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 inflation, to for cover sure. the cost of inflation, but also because personalization. So like picking the rims of your car, picking like designing the interior. Yeah. These have become a pretty material portion of their business, yeah. 20%. And it's it's continuing to grow. Yeah, and this is not if you had uh, you know a Toyota and you're adding some extra features that may cost ten percent more the price. People are for personalizations of Ferraris. You're talking about spending hundreds of thousands of dollars more on the price of the car. Yes, right. So it's a and very margin additive. I would expect as a result. Yes, the the average Ferrari buyer. Mm -hmm. uh, tax on 20% more on top of their purchase price in terms of personalizations. Nice. Good for us. So a lot of people are talking about, have said, Barry, I'm so excited that Lewis Hamilton is joining the Ferrari Formula One team. First of all, I don't follow Formula One. I don't, and I don't know who Lewis Hamilton is. And is this like me not knowing who the rock? Was? Yeah. I, I, you like, like our last podcast. I mean, I, I, I follow wrestling. I don't follow, uh, F1, but I, I assume it's the same stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's, these are exciting people that could bring in more sponsorship and sell more swag and uh, build up the Ferrari brand. Yeah. I think the swag and the, the, and the, and that kind of stuff is secondary. Yeah. I think the big motivation is that Ferrari doesn't spend on marketing. They, you won't see a Ferrari ad on TV, right? The only marketing that they do is through the F1 activity, uh, the, their racing team. And so to the extent that they can get a, a superstar driver who can hopefully give them some better results, like I think that that's only a positive. They don't make business. a lot of money on the F1. Uh, no. No, it's really just to show how, what the cool, sexy car that they come out with and to build up the, the brand and show it's an awesome car and you got to have it because they win all these Formula One races, right? And more importantly is that a lot of the technology that they use in their F1 team is actually integrated into their cars. So like they can go out and tell their clients, oh, you're buying a car with like racing car technology and it's actually true. So that's, um, there have been, Ferrari is, I think, unique, not unique in our portfolio, but Ferrari has always traded at a lofty multiple. And I think that th uh, the reason for that is because, uh, is what you saw in this year. Like they can grow volumes at 3%, but profits are up 30%, right? So even a very small increase in car production has a very very strong flow through to the bottom line, and as 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 they move into things like SUVs and and electric cars, and now maybe boats, and maybe boats, yeah. like I think there's a lot of opportunity to grow. Awesome. All right, so our feature discussion is a company that I'm sure a lot of our clients have maybe ha even have their products in their body, uh, but uh, they don't really know the brand. But it's a company called Striker. 
There, you know, there's an actual Mr. Stryker, right, that uh, yes. founded the company. And Stryker is a leading orthopedic manufacturer of hips, knees, joint replacements, as well as a number of other medical devices and selling stuff to hospitals. So, Ernest, uh, when did we buy the stock for our clients? 2020. 2020 or 2021. Yeah, I think 2021. Like yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we always are interested and fascinated by the healthcare space. Um, you know, we've never, we shied away, Ernest, from owning pharmaceutical companies right now to our detriment because we don't own anything in, involved in the, uh, you know, the weight loss Ozempic type uh, businesses. But uh, we, we always like the medical device technology. And so let's talk a little bit about Stryker and why we like the industry and where we see it going. Right. I think, uh, as you pointed out, we don't really invest too much in the healthcare and medical sectors, mainly because, look, my, my degree is in accounting. Like, I don't know anything about drugs or about yeah. healthcare. I've or, got a business degree. I, I don't know anything about uh, pharmaceuticals either. And it's just very tough, right? It's a very tough, like lots of things that you have to grasp. You have to understand, like, well, will the drugs work? You have to understand like the regulatory environment. Uh, it's very, very tough. So we don't largely don't play or own companies in that space. That's right. And we certainly wouldn't invest in uh, biotech or things where there's a binary outcome. Um, it's beyond our capabilities, as you mentioned. So Stryker is a little bit different. And the reason is that most of their products are not what I think what most people would call leading edge uh, healthcare products. Mm -hmm. Like they're not going out and creating a new life-saving device that nobody ever thought of. Okay. Most of their products that they launch are incremental improvements over the previous version. And so, and the reason why this matters is because at least in the United States, the approval process is very different. If you have a hospital, if you're launching a new hospital bed, right? Like you don't have to go through a full approval process with clinical trials and all those things. It's just it's just a new bed. It's a bed. It's a yeah. bed. So it's a bed. It may go up a little bit more than the previous one. Exactly. Yeah. So there is a different approval process for these products that is a lot faster. Yeah. Uh, is a lot less rigorous, and you know, quite frankly, doesn't require any like substantial R and D efforts into yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, you don't have the patent protection like you may have for a pharmaceutical product. Right. Uh, I mean, you may have some patents for the product. Anyway, that's off. We're getting off topic, but okay. Yeah. So for Stryker, about 60% of their sales are from hospital equipment. Mm -hmm. So think of things like surgical tools, hospital beds, cots, like badges that nurses can wear and all these kinds of like things that a hospital needs to exist on. And as our population grows, as our population ages, do you think we're going to need uh, fewer hospitals and fewer equipment going forward? No. No. <laughs> so that's 60% yeah. of their business. Mm -hmm. The remaining 40% of their business, but a larger percentage of their profits is from their orthopedic implant business. So these are hip and knee and shoulder and ankle joint replacements. And orthopedic implants... Are, are a really good business okay. for a variety of reasons. Number one is that the surgeons that perform these surgeries, they typically have a like they typically have a brand that they they prefer to operate on. Absolutely. They 
they, they may have been mentored on that brand, uh, learned, got their degree based on that brand, uh, learned from another doctor on that brand, um, had intimate, um, that's the wrong word, but the good relationships with the company yes. on that brand. And, and so therefore they're not, they're going to use, they're going to be a striker doctor. And the, the surgeon, yeah. like not surprisingly, he doesn't really care if the competitor is selling their implant for a lower price yeah. because he's used to operating with striker, for example, mm -hmm. and hospitals, um, the, the people that employ the surgeons correspondingly, like they're willing to accommodate the preferences of the surgeons because orthopedic surgery is one of the most profitable mm -hmm. procedures and that it's are also, offered by a hospital. And it's also a star-based type service, right? You yeah. want to go to the orthopedic surgeon that has the best rating, uh, that has the best bedside manner, that gets the surgery done in, a, in such a way from referrals. And so they may be willing to pay up for that surgeon and essentially that surgeon calls the shots. Well, I may, I may, yeah. maybe just to clarify quickly, this is the United States, yeah. which is a for-profit healthcare system. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But I think it's still true for Canadian hospitals as well. Yes. Uh, pride of having the known, the, the best surgeon in, in their field. Yeah. So as a result, there are essentially three orthopedic implant companies, and they have they don't really change market share too much because of all the dynamics that we just talked about. Right. So Dr. Ernest, if you're a striker guy, it's going to take you a lot to switch to Smith and Nephew or Zimmer or Johnson right. and Johnson, right? Yeah. Right. Those are the three Those players. are the three. Johnson, yeah. Johnson acquired Smith and Nephew? No, uh, yeah. they, they, they've been in for a while. Okay, yeah. What happened is there's two things. Number one is the is that... Stryker acquired a company called Mako, which makes a robot that helps with orthopedic procedures. At the time that they did the deal, it was controversial because nobody was using robots to, to do these implants. But now like everybody is doing them. And the reason that this matters is because once a hospital or a surgeon has a Mako robot, you have to use a Stryker implant. So... Razor, razor blade model? Yes. Yeah. So that's been a big driver of their business. Number two is that their main, the, the largest company in the world, which is Zimmer, uh, Zimmer Biomet. Zimmer is bigger than Stryker? They were. Okay. I don't, yeah. I think they're about equal yeah. today. They, Zimmer uh, merged with Biomet. Yeah. We, we used to be shareholders of Zimmer. And in the yeah. process of the integration, they had some supply issues. So they just weren't able to get their, their, their implants out to, to doctors. That's why we sold the stock, by the way. And, yeah. and as a result, surgeons that even preferred Zimmer Biomet implants had to switch. And a lot of them switched to Stryker. And they're not going to switch back no. to Zimmer. Yeah. And so those have been two main tailwinds. Uh, and Stryker has outgrown its competitors like pretty substantially. So Stryker has taken market share from its competitors. Yes. What about pricing in this industry? There's no, there's very little pricing opportunity because these are already fairly high margin products. There has been some concern over the years that people are paying too much for these implants, especially since Medicare pays, uh, is a large client, right? Yeah. They, they do a large chunk of the reimbursements for these surgeries. Yeah. 
Yeah, in, in Canada, of course, the surgery is covered under your uh, healthcare plans or your uh, provincial healthcare plans. In the U.S., you know, a, a knee replacement can run up to sixty thousand dollars per knee. Yes, yeah. and or, so or higher. That was a, year, a few years ago. I heard. Mm -hmm. One last thing that Stryker has done is they went out and bought a company called Wright. So Wright is the leading provider of uh, what they call extremities implants. So. Uh, implants for your shoulder and your ankle. This is a fast-growing area of orthopedics because the implants historically have not been as good. And as the technology improves, as, as the surgeons become more comfortable operating, you can increase the amount of indications that it can be used for. Right? Previously, you would only replace your shoulder if if you really had to. But now, like... As the technology has gotten better, uh, the, the, the surgeon is going to be more comfortable prescribing it to you. So that's something that has been growing very rapidly for Stryker. So there's lots of tailwinds in this industry, of course. The aging population, um, pop, the potential of a larger, uh, obes larger percentage of obesity in North America, uh, leading to more stress on the, um, on, on the joints as well as a potential in emerging markets, right? Where typically those sur these surgeries aren't performed. Yes. So, I mean, everything is turning up roses for Stryker. Yeah, I think one last uh, thing that I would add on is on their M&A strategy. And this is, I guess, not too unique to Stryker, but most large uh, medical devices companies typically are fairly integrated into like they have relationships and the high end of the the the, the hospitals and the, the health networks. Okay. So they can go out and acquire these little uh, healthcare companies that maybe made a new widget, and then they can flow that through their sales network and immediately generate synergies from acquisitions. And so that's been a, a, a fairly important contributor to their business over time. I assume that the striker salespeople um, are very close to the the surgeons that they work with yes. and having regular phone calls and meetings and updates and presentations and have you thought about this can we add this what can we do for you i assume that also striker is great at listening to surgeon complaints and making fast changes to their products and their services as a result yes and i think one area that you've really seen this uh show fruit bear fruit is in the ambulatory surgical centers, okay. um, which is called ASCs, which are outpatient facilities that you can go do a surgery and then go home and not have to stay a whole night. So what's happening is they don't want the hospitals cluttered with uh, people going for orthopedic surgery. And this is something that's probably going to happen in Canada as well. Having specific surgery centers for orthopedic surgery, um, which makes a lot of sense. You don't want to integrate people that may be staying overnight or half a day for surgery with those that are very sick. And it just makes sense. And so more of those centers are popping up in the U.S. to perform those types of surgeries. Yes. Okay. And Stryker has been growing very rapidly in this channel uh, because of their ability to provide a whole bundle of equipment to these centers. Mm -hmm. So that's something that they've benefited from as well. Mm -hmm. And that's an excellent. So talk about Ernest uh, valuation and uh, Striker and how we see it uh, going forward. When we purchased the stock, it was trading, I think, kind of similar to other medical device companies. Um, but they, they've 
executed pretty well. They've grown pretty rapidly. So now it trades at a bit of a higher multiple yeah. than its competitors. Actually, quite a substantial, yeah. mul- in, 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 quite a substantially higher multiple than Zimmer, for example. But for good reason. Yes. Uh, when we bought this stock, we bought it um, during COVID, uh, after the main crisis, but in 2021 when there was a gigantic backlog of these surgeries. These surgeries were put off, of course, because hospitals were overflowing with uh, COVID-related issues. And certainly, no one needs to get uh, knee replacement surgery the next day, right? Uh, I, I feel for those that are in pain when their knees and their hips and what have you, but it's something that you can wait to have the surgery for. Yes. Uh, but um, clearly, think so one of the knocks on could be, well, Ernest, isn't it just a recovery uh, from all the backlog of, of surgeries and will the growth slow down from here? Maybe a little bit for the orthopedic business, but like, like you said in the beginning, there is still a large demographic tailwind for the business. And let's talk quickly about these weight loss drugs. Um, as a result, of course, wonderful. I mean, if, if these drugs do work in the next iterations, people will lose weight uh, and that could put less stress on their hips or their knees, which could, the theory could be you won't need hip or knee replacement surgeries if you're in great shape, but not all hip and knee replacements are due to obesity or wear and tear as a result of being obese, correct? Right. And so like pickleball, for example, has been cited as one re- as one contributor to their strong growth because uh, it's a way for older people to be more active. And as they become more active, like unfortunately things happen. So then they have to go and get uh, joint knee or knee or hip replacements. Yeah. So you, Ernest, have you seen some of these people in pickleball? They're amazing. I mean, yeah, you, you would think it's a sport easy to pick up, but some of these people smash the ball really hard. So um, what I was going to say is uh, with the weight loss drugs, it could encourage more surgeries as well because a lot of surgeons are afraid or say to their patients, you know, listen, you need to lose 20, 30, 40 pounds before I can do the surgery because there's other complications that could happen from surgery. This is no joke. They're putting people under anesthetic. They're putting people out to do the surgeries and their risks, right? So uh, they ask people to lose weight. But now with the weight loss drugs, there's a potential that you could lose weight and, uh, then be a candidate for the surgery where maybe you wouldn't be able to lose weight on your own. Right. I think that I'm, I, I think it's kind of hard to project exactly how it'll play out yeah. for their orthopedic business. It'll probably have a bit of an impact on some of their other business lines, such as their endoscopy, like stroke management business yeah. and those kinds of things. But like, I think for the time being, like we haven't really seen any impact so far. We haven't, and we don't know the long-term impacts, and and think these things do ebb and flow. Uh, and or yeah, like for example, like will these drugs end up causing other health complications? Exactly, and of course we know that people that go on medication, one of the problems that is that they don't stick with it, just like anything else. So, any final words on uh, Striker? No, I think I think the way to think about Striker is is it's a very well very well run business just like the rest of our portfolio and we're happy to own it very good thank you so much for joining us today we'll see you back here real soon this podcast is for informational purposes only and any forecasts on the economy 
markets, or individual securities should not be viewed as investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Clients of Baskin Wealth Management and the speakers on this podcast may own shares of the companies discussed. Information on this podcast is current as of the time of production and is subject to change. If you have any questions or would like to subscribe to these podcasts, visit our website at baskinwealth.com.